Hello and welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, everybody. The only podcast in human history where two brothers talk about a thing they like, and that thing is comic books. I'm one of the two brothers slash comic book fan slash kind of comedian, Will Hines. I'm the other one of all those things and so much more, Kevin Hines. And at this episode, we're we're beginning a um, season of talking about Marvel firsts, which is sort of like the big issue number ones that happened in 1960. Yeah. So um, basically the dawn of the real Marvel universe, you know, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Hulk, X-Men, Daredevil, Avengers, Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, not Captain America, because um, he was a little later. Uh I think I missed a few, but you get the you get the you idea. get the gist. You get the gist. We're not mm-hmm. doing spinoffs, so if it's like the Silver Surfer number one, we're not doing that, or the Submariner number one, or any humans. Sort of, yeah, we're doing the kind of the the ones that you know created the original properties of the Marvel Ant Man. That's who I forgot. How could I forget Ant Man? Ant Man, he's big one, big number mm-hmm. two. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we've covered some of these before, so we're going to go over the ones we've covered before because we did a season on Spider-Man, Hulk, and Fantastic Four where we covered their debut issues. So today we're going to sort of revisit those, and then next week we're covering Ant-Man and Iron Man? Sounds right. Okay. Check our Instagram if you uh, want, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm going to confirm while you're talking. Screw it comics on Instagram. That's our Instagram. And I might as well tell you our, tell you our email, screwitcomics at gmail if you want to email us about anything. You can let us know at that email address. Ant-Man and Thor. Okay, Ant-Man and Thor. So I've I've read, you know, today we're doing the big three, FF, uh, Spidey, and the Hulk. I've never really, I haven't read too many of the other ones. Or I think I did when I was a little kid because they'd be like in collected mm-hmm. editions. But it's been a long time. So I'm excited to read them again. I'm pretty certain I've never read Ant-Man. I maybe read Thor. I've definitely read Doctor Strange and Iron Man and Avengers. And I'm not sure I've read X-Men and Daredevil. I'm, I'm pretty sure I have not read Daredevil. I'd be surprised if I've read Daredevil. So, yeah, we're excited to go over it. Um, it's the birth of the Marvel Universe. These are the comics that created, you know, half of the comic book industry and more. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the seeds of the MCU and all that stuff. Yeah. Any predictions, Kev? Um, I think they're all going to die at the end of their issues, their respective issues. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, one thing, uh, so I guess we're, we'll just, we'll, oh, you know, what? before we get into the big three, I want to do a segment where we talk about other things that we've been reading, which are sure. often super comics adjacent. Cause I read the, um, Alan Moore short story collection, Illuminations. You finished it. I finished it. Yeah. And, um, this is a short story collection that came out, I think September, 2022, a bit earlier this year. Okay. Uh, prose collection because alan has said he's never doing comics again and whether or not that's true this is a prose collection mm-hmm. some of the short stories are ones that he had written a long time ago one of them is from like 1987 i think and there's a couple others that are scattered around the years and then he wrote four four original pieces for this book um and there's nine stories in total but the thing i wanted to talk about is if you've read anything about this alan moore book kevin one of one of these stories quote unquote stories is a 220 page novella novel really called what we can know about thunderman which is like a uh sort of a satire of the comic book industry and you've heard about this correct no 
No, just from you recently. I have not heard anything about I mean, I know about the Illuminations collection. I don't know really about anything that's in it. Okay, so, uh, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard of Alan Moore, but just on the off chance that you haven't, Alan Moore is comic book writer who did Watchmen and V for Vendetta and From Hell and a long run on Swamp Thing and is, you know, one of the most respected and talented writers in comic book history by pretty much everybody's account. He's one of those guys where even if you don't like his stories, you tip your hat that this guy is one of the best. And most people do like at least some of the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but, he, you know, he's had his issues with the comic book industry, really upset about like not how the how the creators don't own their characters. And there's been other issues. And so he moved away from D.C. after Watchmen and away from Marvel Um and started doing stuff for indie companies, and then he's even moved away from that, and now he just writes books. So, um, yeah, so the short stories were really good. I enjoyed the whole collection. What the was your favorite one in there? My favorite there's, – there's a number of them I really dug. Uh, I think overall my favorite one is a, is a very strange – uh, one to explain because it's it's got the Alan Moore thing of everything's being told sort of out of order. But okay. the the gist of the story is there is a club of people in England who keep an eye out for paranormal activity. And unbeknownst to them, one of the members of their group is a paranormal being. Um, and they are getting close to inadvertently discovering him or so he thinks so he uh murders them all but um that's told the the paranormal creature himself experiences time backwards so upon meeting these people he murders them and then like begins to get to know them uh and like a good superhero comics writer alan is once it's revealed what this creature is all about, he's very clear about like the ways in which his paranormal thing works. And it's something like you wake up and live the day in forward time, but then when you go to sleep, you wake up the day before. Okay. So he keeps a diary every day and it's kind of like memento. So he's got a diary of all the days he's yet to experience. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So he gets um, up and he reads this whole diary every day or? Uh, he gets memory. He has memories of everything. Oh, he, okay. So he remembers reading it the day before. But were, is the book the diary? No, no. <laughs> so the diary is just the thing that exists. Got it. It just explains how he, mm-hmm. like, from his, from the from the re, from the rest of the people's point of view. Oh, the other thing that happens is the book changes point of view of each person in the meeting. So you learn what everybody thinks about everybody else. But then. Every other segment is the paranormal creature whose text is in italics. And, you know, at first it's confusing what he is saying, and then it becomes clear. And it's very funny and kind of sad uh, because you figure out what's coming long before the characters in the story do. Um, But it's it's very Alan Moore. It's kind of, kind Mm -hmm. of, uh, I don't know, devilish and really smart and sort of narratively clever. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that one. I heard Marvel is uh on the rights to that owns the rights to those stories now. Somehow they got it. Yeah, he's really gonna be mad when he finds <laughs> out gonna that, be, that they gonna did it. Real... Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I don't know. There's a lot of Alan Moore tropes. There's a lot of yeah thing people experiencing stuff out of time. There's a lot of 
um, kind of monstrous creatures, either literally monsters or just people behaving monstrously. How much rape? There's a fair amount of sex in general and mm -hmm. a little bit of assault. Mm -hmm. um, Sound more. And violence, a lot of violence. Let's not forget that there's violence. Um, I decided that the elements of an Alan Moore story is um, narrative complexity, just like the way in which the information is given to you is like a puzzle. Uh, Douglas Adams-like sense of humor, where there's like a sort of civil British description of something grand for mm -hmm. comic effect. Like, you know, oh, and Jesus really enjoyed his walks. That's something they don't say about him, but he was quite a walker in that Jesus or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then making fun of something, just like he's uh, he's just making fun of something often viciously or, you know, lightly, but there's something that's getting made fun of usually, almost always. Um, anyway, I really enjoyed it. If you're an Alan Moore fan, they're a good story. A couple of them were just too hard for me to read. Like I just pushed through them. I was like, I barely know what's going on. Like I don't care. Mm -hmm. But most of them are, were really readable and enjoyable. A lot of his comics end with now like 12 page prose, tiny print backups. So is there comic book backups to these stories? No, no. <laughs> all right, all right. So it doesn't go both ways. All right. That's interesting. <laughs> Is the it print extra tiny in this book? No, it's regular size print. Because yeah, I feel it, like in the comics, I'm like, oh, I can barely read this I with know. my old eyes. <laughs> he does, Um, he writes like too much. Like all of his sentences are really long and verbose. Like mm -hmm. I got tired just like reading all <laughs> the sentences. I was like, I need a break. Like um, it, it's somehow very clear what's going on, but it's just uh, the prose is is pretty it's pretty complicated. And um, I feel like I distracted you. Did you want to talk about this Thunderman story? Yeah. So the what a lot of people are talking about is the, the big novella, what we can know about Thunderman, um, is a, what you call, Kevin, a Roman Aklef, where like the characters in this story are obvious stand-ins for real people. Like there's an obvious Stan Lee character. Okay. There's an obvious Jack probably, Kirby character. Probably the Stan Lee character is treated well. Yeah, he's he's portrayed to be a saint. Uh, no criticism <laughs> of the Stanley character. Good, good, good. Um, there's also some characters who seem to be fictional, or composites, maybe, or just sort of stand-ins. But it's and it tells like sort of the history of American comics from the birth of Thunderman, aka Superman, through mm -hmm. like 2020. Um, and it's mostly incredibly mean to everybody in the industry. You know, it's either it's either like portraying the corporations as these really exploitive, soul-sucking, horrible people, or creators as these like sort of un you know super nerds who let themselves get taken advantage of because they're so desperate to be around the properties of their youth. Like nobody really comes off too good here. The I mean, the main exception is I think that there is a couple times where the creators are portrayed as children reading comics for the first time. And his description of a kid looking at a comics rack and reading comics is quite sweet and like powerful and reverent in a nice way. So like the comics themselves are not treated so badly always. Although there's also like stand-ins for all of the famous comic book characters. And some of those names are funny. Like Teen Titans is something like Omnipotent Teen Militia or something like that. Okay. Spider-Man is Beetle Boy. Hulk is The Brute. Um, Batman is King Buzz or no King B and Buzz is his sidekick. Um, you know, they're all like kind of slightly 
undermining yeah. names. Uh, but the creators get it worse than the stories. But it's really so okay. I I guess I recommend it because it's very particular. It's often really funny. Um, it does that Alan Moore thing where it switches like formats a lot. Like a lot of it is straight prose, and then it'll be like one of the characters will have written capsule reviews of all of the Thunderman movies in this universe. And so you're reading a character's reviews of Thunderman. So you're learning about the different iterations of Thunder. And there's a clear Christopher Reeve analog. There's a clear George Reeves analog. So I mean, you basically have to know the comics industry history, I think, to enjoy this story. But he doesn't actually end up saying anything too revolutionary. It's just like the companies are exploitive, you know, and a lot of the creators are actually not that talented children emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, and Stan Lee's a jerk and Jack Kirby's beyond reproach. And But it, it is kind of fun. It's got that Alan Moore. It jumps around in time a lot. And such brutal things happen to the characters to show how like low and lame they are that it is like funny. Like many times I was reading, I was just go like, Jesus Christ, Alan, what are you doing to like such and such a character? Uh, that fantastical things happen to sort of, to show their like, at one point, the main character, which is this kid who becomes editor-in-chief of DC, which is called American Comics, and Marvel is called Massive Comics. Uh, the main character, uh, at one point, he goes for a, a job interview, and he goes to the headquarters of DC Comics, American Comics, takes an elevator, and he gets off and enters the world of Thunderman, like literally enters the comic book. And it's like his dream come true. But that's shown to be a lame wish mm -hmm. to have um i don't know i do I, I it is really impressive like it is not just a tossed off screed it is a really like impressively put together with all of alan moore's like narrative abilities but i was by the end of it i was like all right alan i get it you hate the comic book industry like you don't have to go back yeah. you know like it's all right like we get he also, it. whenever he gets interviewed, he gets asked about comic books, and I'm sort of like, well, this is why. I mean, not just because you're thinking great comics, because also so... you don't keep talking about it. Yeah, don't write gets, a story about it. He gets irritated when people are like, do you miss, do you like, do you, are you proud of Watchmen? Do you ever want to write comics? And he's like, oh, I've said this many times, you know, because of my, you know, my very reason. I don't want to talk about comic books. Now, here's my new book, comic books. Yeah, exactly. Book. Exactly. Like, he's asking for it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's asking for it. That's a great uh, way to describe it. Uh, but yeah, it's I mean, it does feel like I mean, he would be asked it anyway, like, to be fair. That's true. That's true. It's not um, like people are going to not ask the guy who wrote Watchmen. I mean, the people ask Quentin Tarantino what he thinks about Marvel movies. They're going to ask Alan Moore what he thinks about movies. Right. But uh, you certainly aren't helping your cause when you're writing a story about the comic book industry. I did. I did think that the other eight stories are much more enjoyable, even though they are. They're. They're all. Every one of them is pretty sour and cynical. Most of them sort of fall in the category of like kind of funny irony. The comics one is the one that's got real bite to it. Although even that was interesting. Um, and there's maybe two stories in there where I just honestly could barely tell what was going on, and I just was like, I. I don't care to figure. Do you this think out. Alan Moore is? Always is he like that? If you met him in real life, would he just grumble and complain to you the whole time, or do you think this is just I how he writes? About that. 
I wondered about that. Does he? Because that seems like someone who would not be fun to spend any time with. Yes. I had that thought many times while reading the book, which is like, man, I don't want to hang out with Alan Moore. But it could just be that this is his way of being entertaining, that like Mm -hmm. when he puts pen to paper, you know, kind of maybe the only way or not the only way, but one of his main ways of relating to the story is to kind of be cynical and mean. Mm -hmm. But he it's also often quite funny, like it's it's very silly and absurd and there are moments of warmth and humanity. So I could also just imagine him being actually a relatively chill person. Just don't ask him about Watchmen. It is so funny. To, I compare Alan Moore mostly to Neil Gaiman as like these sort of British writers who kind of came to America, took took America by storm comic book wise, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. created many of the most beloved concepts, sort of almost everything they've ever done is considered good, at worst, very good. And often some of the best works that's ever been done. But like Alan Moore is always angry and bitter and complaining. And Neil Gaiman always seems pretty positive. Yes, yes. Um, that is the I, main – That I think of that the same way. Like they, they do have a lot in common. And I think Neil Gaiman in particular learned a lot from Alan Moore and modeled a lot of his comics after Alan's approach, at least at the beginning. And they – you know, yeah, like you say, they have a lot of similar tropes and yeah. stuff. But yeah, Neil is ultimately like a happy energy, and the Sandman books generally are like a happy world. Not always. Very terrible things go down occasionally. Like, I don't think Neil people. owns Sandman, right? No, no, definitely not. I think DC often goes to him first if they want to do something with it. But if he always said, no, never, I'm not going to do anything, they probably would be doing Sandman comics without him. Yeah. Um, he is, yeah. you know, Neil Gaiman has been involved. He's involved in the TV show. He was involved in like the failed movie attempts to some extent. So like he seems he to have could a say no open relationship, I, you know, and, and Alan is Alan is more sour about comics, certainly. And also just Alan's stories are more like sour. Yeah. Like they're 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 more horrific. Like Alan's horror stories are scarier than Neil's because just scarier stuff goes down. Um, the opening yeah, story of Alan Moore has more like bad things happening for no reason where Neil Gaiman's are more like bad things happening to bad people. Generally, it, there is a sense of justice in the Neil Gaiman stories. Usually I'm sure we can yeah. find exceptions to that, but that's generally yes, of true. Course. Um, although usually when it's true, it's because he's taking it from a myth where the myth that he's borrowing from is the brutal mm-hmm. story, you know, but like, um, yeah, Alan Moore, the opening story in Illuminations is this thing he wrote in 1987, which is like it takes place in some science fiction world that I had never heard of called Liviac. I apologize for not even knowing it, but it's some existing sci-fi fantasy franchise that was in the 80s. And Alan was asked to write a story that took place in that world. And he wrote about a brothel where all of the prostitutes have some kind of supernatural, fantastical, physical ability to perform their tasks. But it is a deeply sad story, heartbreaking. Like nobody in that story is happy. And by the end of it, I was like, is the whole book going to be like this? And it wasn't, but it was- a tiny bit of Alan Moore that reminds me of uh, uh, Jason Lee, uh, Jason Lee? Uh, Jason, yeah, Jason Lee's character from Mallrats, who just (laughs) wanted to talk about the different superheroes, Dongs. Yeah. It's like, hey, write a story oh. in our science fiction universe. I'll talk about a brothel. It's like, all right, dude. Dude, 
What's your What's your Star just, Wars story? Just, so Princess Leia is fucking Han Solo. Exactly. No, you're kind of right. Except it wouldn't be that normal. It would be yeah, like R two D two had a secret ability that he never told anybody, which was you know his vibrator or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, or you know C three PO, in addition to translating languages, can translate erogenous zones. Of course, no one ever asked him that, but it wasn't capable of doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing his books are good when they're so often like rooted in something where I'm like, oh, come on, dude. Well, this is like. This is a horny collection of stories. Like almost every <laughs> single story has uh, a pretty intense sex component to it. Great. Um, I mean, it gets so, to be funny when it shows up. It's almost out of nowhere sometimes. Like, uh, but I don't know. It is. We, we've talked about this before with uh, Alan Moore and other things. It it make it's more like lurid than like yeah exploit. I guess this is in the what your opinion is, but it feels like the blood and the sex and the horror are just kind of like making it a sort of dime store paperback novel. I can't wait to see what happens. Sure. And I mean, I think that is some of Alan Moore's mentality on that stuff is that sex is uh, treated uh, too, too often treated like some taboo subject when, why is it like, I mean, that's what his lost girls book seemed to be partially about. Right. Yes. But he also just seems to be a horny dude. Like, yeah, I think there's, so. There's just a ton of sex in his books, but um, uh, I don't know. I but I I just I'm listing all the faults because I I sort of can't help but zero in on them. But it really was an impressive, enjoyable book, and certainly if you're an Alan Moore fan, these were really good. And if you skip the Thunderman story, you could read it in like two days. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know if you like short short stuff. Um, okay, that's that's what I wanted to talk about. Do you, you got anything? Uh, I watched Black Adam. Okay, what'd you think? It's I fine. haven't seen it. It's fine, yeah. I, I mean, there's no reason to go into any strong details. It's not that good a movie. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, you know, Rock is charismatic, and it's crazy that there's a movie with, like, Dr. Fate and Hawkman in it. and uh, Yeah. And not Adam Smasher, not the Adam, but Adam Smasher, the, you know, the Justice Society is in a movie. I think that's just sort of crazy. Yeah. The effects are okay. It's not very good, but also I've heard people say it's terrible. I also, it's certainly in my mind, way better than like Batman versus Superman. Right. I enjoyed this more than the Justice League movie, which I know some people really enjoy, but also it is not a good movie. Like Mm. there's like a, sequence at the end where like a kid on a skateboard is like leading a villain villagers to go help black Adam. That is sort of like very cheesy. There's yeah. lots of like eye rolling moments. Um, but um, I don't it, know. It, it feels like a lot of these movies and it's not limited to superhero movies, but just blockbuster franchise things are like somebody writes on index cards, a bunch of cool ideas for scenes. They pick their favorites and it's like, all right, string these together. Yeah. I mean, this feels like, a generic blockbuster uh, in every way, like that it's not terrible. Um, it's, it's, I think it's very watchable and an easy watch. I mean, it starts with like an, a lot of movies start with like backstory or like somebody describing, telling you a story about the, the backstory of a world. And like when that happens on like Lord of the Rings, I'm like, okay, you know, these are 900 pages of books. You probably have to get a few things out of the way just to get into the story. But when it's a comic book like Black Adam, I'm like, do we really need like a, five minute intro on the history of Kondok. I don't, I don't know. There's probably a way to do this very quickly within the story, but maybe not. Um, Yeah. You know, it's also, I think that the, 
I think the moral of this movie is sometimes it's okay to kill. I don't think it's meant to be, but uh, that's what it ends up being. Like the Justice Society don't like Black Adam because he kills people, but sort of at the end they're like, yeah, maybe kill this dude. <laughs> sort of. I'm, I'm, I'm trivially uh, trivializing it, but it, there's a little bit of that in there. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, sometimes it's okay to kill. Uh, <laughs> you're okay, Black Adam. Um, I mean. It- the point of any superhero story is like, you know, these vigilantes who take the law out of their own hands with acts of extreme yeah. violence are good. <laughs> yeah. But they make a big point of like, don't kill these people. Don't kill these people. They're, even though they're soldiers and they're evil, like we should, they should, we should do this the right way. But by the end, it definitely, Hawkman comes around to the idea of murder. <laughs> <laughs> There's also like a little moment in the middle of the movie where like, they're like, don't kill these soldiers. We want to like get information out of them. By like torturing them, I guess. So it's like, is that better? Yeah. You know, it's like, let's not kill, let's torture. Um, that's the good guy approach. It doesn't they don't quite say it that way, but it certainly feels like that. Um, I don't know. It was fine. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh I would watch more Black Adam movies if they make them, but I also watched it for free on HBO Max. So I wasn't like going to the theater. I didn't pay $14 to see this in theaters. Right. Yeah. Uh, um Okay. Where are we at? Should we take a break and then talk about? Well, let's take a break and then we'll first. do our, the actual okay. episode. Okay. Okay, Marvel firsts. So, so today we're going to talk about Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, and Hulks. The big three, kind of. Respective first issues. Yeah. Um, big three, because without... these characters are the biggest characters in the Marvel Universe for a long time. And the issues themselves are good. Yeah. I mean, without having read some of the ones we're going to cover, it's hard to compare them to those. But I think it's not a huge leap to say that these are the three most enjoyable ones that we're going to be covering. Yeah. Um, uh, Spider-Man in particular is a great, great story. Yeah, I think Spider-Man has got to be in contention, if not unquestionably, the best single issue superhero origin ever, right? I mean, like – yeah. Having the first issue be the origin story and have it be good and have it hold up. Is there anything as good as Amazing Fantasy 15? I don't know. Yeah. Um, and so let's talk about that real quick. I mean, like it, we've talked about it in depth in our first our first episode or maybe our second episode. Second episode. I, we may, yeah. Uh, but our inaugural season. Yes. Um, so there's no reason to go super page by page in depth into it. But uh, it's so good. It's so fun. It's It's sad and exciting. It, it reads like it's 30 pages long, but it's only like 15 pages. Yeah, I think it's 11. 11. Um, it, but it reads like a longer than a full page story sometimes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's and it holds up well, pr- pretty mm-hmm. well, too. Like the other two that we're going to talk about, um, although they are genius in their own ways, uh, read a lot more dated just in terms of like pacing and verbosity and plot. Well, I would almost say like they would be better if they were only 11 pay- – like if if you pulled out – like both of them have like two stories in them, right? The, like the Hulk has that gargoyle yes. story, which feels like it should be a whole nother issue. issue. Yes. Uh, and the Fantastic Four Mole Man thing, which I think is pretty fun, feels like a whole – it's like it's like here's their origin and their first adventure. It's as if this story included the chameleon. Uh, which, is the Spi- which is Spider-Man's first uh, yeah. villain. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's like two issues crammed into one, and it kind of suffers a little bit from being crowded a little bit. Um, 
Oh, but the, the downside of Amazing Fantasy 15, and so this is the story, you know, this is the famous origin of Spider-Man where he gets his powers and then he only uses them to make money on for enter, an entertainment. And then he lets a burglar go by because he's only looking out for number one. And that burglar kills his Uncle Ben and it like yeah, teaches him that he's got to fight for good. With great power, there must also come great responsibility. Yes. Or there must come. There must also come. There else. must also. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um. People make make it sound like it matters, but they both both kind of work. Yeah, and um, you know the the really only downside of this is that it's been told so many times that it's a little bit of like you kind of roll your eyes when you see it coming in a Spidey adaptation because it's we yeah. know it sort of. But bef- outside of just being told a million times, it really holds up. Yeah, I mean, if it's missing anything, it doesn't have a ton of like super heroics, right? Yeah, his powers are not on display too much. He mostly uses them just like on the talk show and then to catch like a normal burglar. But but the emotions uh, are front and the center. The emotions like, are, yeah. And it's for, Ditko art, which is always really good, even though I think he gets incredibly better like in four or five issues. He like levels up. Oh, yeah. By issue three already, like the art in Amazing Spider-Man is so much better. But I, as you say, it's quite good here. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing and something you've you've observed back when we did these issues in depth is that although Jack Kirby created the highest volume of major Marvel properties by far, like there's mm-hmm. just and you know, Marvel is built on the back of Jack Kirby unquestionably. Uh this Ditko is the one who created the template for the Marvel story. And it's here. It's amazing fantasy 15, like putting the emotions front and yeah. center, real life heart over fights it's it's this is a modern superhero story yeah i mean when i was reading comics in the 80s and uh, and even through like the 90s and 2000s it still feel it still felt like every new character i mean it still feels like this whenever anyone makes a new character it feels like they're trying to make a new spider-man they're not trying to make a new fantastic four very rarely is that what it seems like they're doing like miss marvel feels like oh this is trying to be spider-man and I think it's largely successful, Miss Marvel, at that. Uh, but like that seems to be what they're going for. They're trying to make yeah. this relatable mm-hmm. uh, character who is struggling in life and now also superpowers, but just kind of makes everything more complicated rather than easier. And like that is all from Spider Man. Um, yeah, it, of these three books, we should move on to the other two so we can compare them. But like we can go back and forth. We should introduce the other two into our yeah, discussion yeah, yeah. here. But like. Amazing Fantasy 15, the first appearance of Spider-Man, is looking forward. And FF and Hulk are more like a synthesis of what has come before. Yes. Like a really cool one. But it is like a mishmash of 50s monster books in, yeah. in a new way. Um, They're like monsters. Hulk is just like a monster book. And the Fantastic Four sort of a monster book and like adventurer team. Yeah. So it's like. Uh, and really an updated turbocharged version of the books that everybody was doing in the fifties, whereas Spider-Man's out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, or at least out of comics. I mean, it's out, maybe it's out of like, you know, Steinbeck short stories or something like that, but it's like, it, it, it is the future. Yeah. So fantastic four was the first Marvel book, the first new Marvel book. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it definitely the cover and the feel of it, reminds people of like the Marvel monster books where like there's a big because like the cover's got a giant monster coming out of the ground. The Fantastic Four themselves, when you don't know anything about them, they look pretty monstrous. 
Yeah, but they're also sort of a team of scientists. They did they don't wear costumes in this first issue. Yeah, they're like a clandestine group of people meeting to discuss something. Yeah, they're all sort of creepy and weird, uh, and their origin is good, but not necessarily like next level good, right? No, the story doesn't. The plot throughout this book, it's more like a collection of really great moments mm-hmm. that are drawn geniusly. Yes. The art um, is great. Like the, the best parts of the FF origin are probably just images of like them being pelted by cosmic rays, not the idea that they're pelted by cosmic rays, just how it looks when they are. There are just like tons of sequences in FF number one that are visually iconic. Like I, yeah. th- them sneaking along the ground to the rocket ship. I think I've seen that, even though that's a pretty straightforward drawing. I've seen that a million times. Yeah. Um, Johnny them, burning up. Johnny burning up for the first time. Uh, uh, ben transforming into that really monstrous version of the thing. Yeah. Um, Johnny Johnny coming out of the melted car. Yeah. The uh, rocket crashing into the ground is a very uh, yeah. memorable image. All four of them putting their hands on each other to agree to be good yeah. guys, really, for no reason. Yeah. Um, so the Fantastic Four comic is like, first they meet up, right? Yeah, it's told out of order. They're, they meet up having a real Alan Moore route. story. But yeah, Alan Moore ripped them off. <laughs> um, actually, he'd be proud to have said he ripped off from Jack Kirby. Although, anyway, um, so yeah, they, they've already gotten their powers and they're meeting up. Uh, like a lot of the Kirby issues that we read of FF and Hulk, they do not, ha- they don't have it yet figured out what the FF are really going to be. Like the the FF changes a lot after this issue. Mm-hmm. Even within the issue, the characters are changing. Yes, but the the basic plot is they all meet having had their powers because there's a threat. Once they get together, we flash back to how they got their powers. And then we find out the threat, which is the mole man and all of his underground monsters, and they go and defeat him. Yes. And that's uh, half the issue is like fighting the mole man. Like they go into like a crystal cavern and does Sue get kidnapped in this one? No, I don't think so. She often does. Um, They get separated a little bit though. Yeah. And there's no costumes, but it's very fun. It's very visually entertaining, but it does almost feel like the moment, despite being on the cover, feels like another comic completely. Oh, absolutely. That, you know, um, modern comics, they would have four issues in that origin story. Yeah. It, it feels like the gathering and the origin feels like a story. And then the fighting the mole man just feels like issue two. <laughs> it just really does. Um, and so if you, if you just held out the origin of the story, there's not a lot there, but I do think it holds up better as a first issue origin story. Um, cause it's sort of mysterious and cool. And, oh yeah. I mean, it's like, it's exciting. I mean, it is like, even though nothing really happens other than like them wrecking cabs on their way to get together. <laughs> if, if Steve Ditko and, and Stanley, we shouldn't eliminate Stan from the amazing fantasy 15 discussion entirely. Um, uh, although he tried to eliminate Ditko entirely and Ditko tried to eliminate Lee entirely. We're, we stick with the collaboration theory. Yeah. I mean, especially at this point, from everything we know, like Stan was much more involved in these early issues. Even if he wasn't on the initial plotting side, he would make a lot of changes. They would have to redraw things. One of their complaints was having to like redraw stuff. Yeah. Um, and it would be like, yeah, let's put this out of order. Let's move this panel. Let's have this. And like, and even Whoever, by picking how, which without which, knowing what the original version looked like, this is good. So he yeah. made good changes, probably. Uh, I think Stan had good taste in comics, um, mm-hmm. for sure. So if if Spider-Man or sorry, if Amazing Fantasy 15 is like a template of a story, um, FF number one is a template of art style. Like 
this is an exciting looking comic book. Um, even though it is a lot of ideas kind of jumbled together and the plot is rushed, so many panels in this book, you remember them for the rest of your life. Like the Valley of Diamonds, I just I've never forgotten that shot. And the weird costumes that Reed and Johnny are when the mole man captures them and he puts them in those like weird radiation suits. Mm -hmm. So maybe that they are also blind like he is. It's never quite explained. Yeah. Um, but it just I mean, is cool. The Valley of Diamonds has no story impact. No, none. But it looks cool. Yeah, it's one panel. They're like you – know, the Mole Man is just kind of showing off his underground kingdom, one part of which is a Valley of Diamonds, which truly is like – should they come back for those diamonds? I mean that could change the world economy <laughs> uh, or even just as a, as a useful mineral or how did it happen? These are well-polished and chiseled diamonds. Yeah. yeah. No, but no follow-up questions. They turn away from it, and it's never mentioned again. <laughs> it's I'm, not, I'm, not, not what they're there for. It's, I mean, probably some FF writer over the years has returned to the Valley of Diamonds. But Jack Kirby, in the next 102 issues, we never get back to the Valley of yeah, Diamonds. Yeah, that's right. So, um, but it looks great, right? And like the Mole Man, although his origin story is basically he's ugly, <laughs> and so he falls into the earth and goes blind and then happens upon a subterranean race of uh, Morlocks. Yeah. That's his origin story. Ugly guy discovers yeah. underground race and is blind. And then they also mm -hmm. kind of throw in there. I also have the radar sense of a bat. Like that's mentioned in one panel and then never kind of gone back yeah. to. Like it's 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 really like it feels like an improvised book where just like they're making it up as they go. They're throwing every idea in. Yeah. And because of mostly because of Jack's art, a little bit because of Stan's fun dialogue. It's an exciting read. Yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. It moves. It's got momentum. It's um, like I think the Spider-Man book is also very exciting. But there's something about this that's sort of like uh, this is more like a roller coaster that you like. Oh, I'm being turned left. Oh, I'm being jerked right. Oh, we're dropping. We're going up. Like there's sort of it's like whoa, what a ride. And as we discussed when we talked about these issues initially, like comparing them to like the DC comics at the time, this might have just been like if you stumbled upon this, if you had picked up this issue between copies of superman or flash or green lantern you must have just been like what is this this is so cool and different and exciting even if it doesn't fully make sense you're like i'm glad it doesn't make sense almost yeah it's like i think it must be like if you've watched a bunch of like well-plotted action movies and then you find like a martial arts film from hong kong where everybody is like jumping unrealistically over each other and like, mm -hmm. you know, using a, a karate chop to like break down a house and it's just almost ludicrous, but, but it works. That's what, that's what this kind of feels like. It's like, Oh, the rules are gone. Yeah. Um, uh, in, a, in a fun way. Yeah. And this also, you know, becomes a comic where they're arguing and fighting and that it's not just, it's not nice in the way of like a DC comics, uh, which is yeah. very fun too. I feel like, you know, something I, I forget if I've read this or this is just a theory that I've made up with no supporting evidence. But like in the mid 50s, there was the comics code that came in and like sanitized all the comics. So all the gore went away and all the immorality went away and they became very like upstanding tales of like do good, you know, no violence. Mm -hmm. um, this without introducing anything that would break the code has the feeling that the code could get broken here. Like they they have a feeling of recklessness. Uh, it doesn't feel sanitized, even though you know there's nothing that's not family friendly in this book. 
Um, but it it feels wild. Yeah, and something Tom Brevrut uh, uh, talks about Revert. in his yeah I can't pronounce it uh, in his blog is how like a lot of the DC comics at this time became more about like not using their powers to fight things, but to like solve like puzzles. Yeah. You know, be like, oh, there's a mysterious man here. And like they would, Superman would use his powers to like figure out who the man is, what alien he, planet he comes from, but not to fight him or defeat him. Yeah. So they had been sort of like, their powers had become more just sort of like, you know, how strong Superman was didn't matter because he didn't have to punch anyone anyway. Yeah. Where like, in this comic, like the thing is like wrecking cars and, and the torches melting everything he sees and their you know, like their powers matter in a very exciting way that you yeah. see it sort of lost at some point. Uh, you mentioned the fighting bit, and that's a key part of the FF is they're not this like upstanding group of good cops. Like the thing is basically portrayed as a bad guy in this issue. Mm-hmm. Um and and he seems super jealous of Reed. I mean, like, at some point in this first issue, Sue is like, oh, Ben, will you ever forgive Reed for what's happened to you? And is like, will you ever forgive him? It's been two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, th- when you think about the origin of the FF, especially with them coming up in the MCU, compared to Spider-Man, you talk about how, like, the Spider-Man origin has been done a thousand times. And it's some of it is because what do you what would you change from the Spider-Man origin? Without Very like little. losing a little bit of what makes him cool. And there's not right. much you can really change. But with the FF, like they don't need to be in a rocket for their origin to work. Like the thing not being able to change back, that's important. Yes. yes. That it's a, a science based, I think is important because like the fact that like they're right. more like explorers and like that reads a genius. Though you can make them all geniuses. I don't think, I, I think making the thing smart doesn't change the FF that much. No. They're, they uh, should they can, be personally related, right? Like that's a big yes. part of the FF. Um, they should have, yeah, they should already be like friends or or uh, family before this already begins. But beyond that, like, like when they did the ultimate FF, they were like dimension hoppers. And it's like, oh yeah, that doesn't change anything about this. Sue is like also a genius. Doesn't change anything about this. Um, I think often Johnny becomes like a mechanical genius in adaptions of this. Rather than just some kid, which makes more sense to have him along for the ride. And it's like, yeah, no, that doesn't change anything. The visuals so matter, right? Like the visual of their powers is crucial. Yes. How they look matters more than like the, the specifics of this story. And that's and that's, that's so funny because normally that is not the sign of a good comic. If it's like, oh, they look good, but the story is kind of immaterial. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, oh, that sounds bad. Yeah. But in the hands of Jack Kirby, the visuals are so good that no, actually that's enough. <laughs> I mean, I guess a little bit that they went and did this uh, secretly is probably also important. Yeah, they're rebels. They're they they, sneaking into the rocket. It doesn't have to be a rocket, but that they like they weren't supposed to do this yet. Yeah, they they um because that line. makes it a mistake. Yeah, they're, they're getting punished in some sense for like yeah. playing God in some weird way. Yeah, and I guess that, yeah, and there is like a poetic sense like. The thing's personality does seem kind of rocky and burdened and weighed down. Mm-hmm. And Reed is kind of elusive and like dodging, you know, kind of diplomatic in this. Uh, Johnny is like the hothead. I mean, like there is like an emotional logic to the to the powers. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's great. I mean, it's fun. I, 
I've re- read this issue and Amazing Fantasy 15 so many, many times. Yes, me too. And the fact that they hold up at all to me, when I read something that often, it's just like, oh, that I still like enjoy reading it is sort of surprising to me sometimes. Um, should we talk about Hulk? Let's talk about the Hulk. I weirdly think the Hulk, at least the origin part of the Hulk, is almost better than the FF origin. Yeah, I think so too. The issue overall is probably not as good and like, the Hulk isn't really a superhero. <laughs> yeah. So he's less weirdly being set up to be like a continuing character in a, in a, in a, like in a, in a, in a superhero universe, but it's really good. I've read this probably less than FF, but I have read it a lot. And similar to FF, this is drawn by Jack Kirby and has like iconic images that are like yes. burned into your brain forever. You know, Banner screaming. Um, yes. When he's getting blasted by the rays. Uh, yeah, uh, and he's uh, still screaming Rick, Rick, hours later. Even Rick Jones playing the harmonica in his car yep. as, Reed, like, as Banner runs towards him is really fun. And of course, Banner throwing Rick into the ditch as he gets exposed to the blast is incredibly iconic. Yeah. Um, you remember that stuff forever. Like, I don't know, Kirby had that knack for like yeah. c- composing a shot. This could almost have been like, again, like a 10-page story. If you take out all the gargoyle stuff, it feels perfect in a lot of ways and the gargoyle stuff feels like kind of a bad second issue um yes yeah it's kind of yeah <laughs> the shot where the gargoyle yells at the portrait of khrushchev really really breaks the story <laughs> but the the basic plot of this is like banner's working on a bomb a gamma bomb mm-hmm. um but there's somebody out in the test field rick jones so banner goes out to get him off the field but the the communist spy does not stop the countdown so the bomb explodes Belting uh, Banner with gamma rays, which turns him into a Hulk. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this story, he sort of just turns into the Hulk arbitrarily. It doesn't happen just at night. Oh, no, it does. It, it, it does happen at night for this one because the sun rises. So it's at nighttime, he becomes this monstrous Hulk character. And then the gargoyle shows up and he's like a communist spy uh, who set, who like was the person who was in charge of the guy who let the bomb go off. And like that whole part sort of doesn't make as much sense. And like, does the Hulk go to Russia in this story? Or is that the, <laughs> another story? I think, yeah, I think, I think he they, does go to Russia. Yeah. They're in Russia at the end. Yeah, they're in they the gargoyles. I mean, yeah. Banner flies around the world in this first issue. <laughs> uh, and that's all a little too much, but the, you know, the recklessness is part of the strength here because the Hulk sure. himself is like, like you say, he's not presented as a hero. He's presented as a monster, a curse for Banner. Yeah. But there is something unmistakably fun about the Hulk. Just being strong and impatient and swatting Rick Jones aside, as we noticed. Yeah. He swats Rick Jones like four times in the first three issues. Yeah. With a bah and just like knocking him like back on his, uh, knocking him over so his feet are hanging up in the air. And like, there, there, I, 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 maybe without design or without plan, the Hulk is fun. The Hulk yeah, is the joyful. Hulk, he's exciting. Uh, weirdly, he's also the only character that has like a kid sidekick, Rick Jones. And that's the other thing that makes it like a throwback. Like that's more of a throwback move for yeah. Marvel. It's more Bucky. It's more Robin, Kid yeah. Flash. Um, though he has no powers, Rick Jones is just along for the ride. Uh, obviously, we've talked in our season, we talk about how each issue, sub- subsequent issue kind of redefines the Hulk almost completely. 
yeah, how his powers work, what he can do, what Rick's role is. It's radically different for the first five issues, six yeah. maybe. But uh, in this issue, it, he's just a monster that like kind of falls into different situations where then the Hulk comes out and wrecks everything. Everyone like wants to take advantage of the Hulk's strength or gamma powers. And then like the Hulk shows up and it, it, it's, almost, it's almost a Godzilla movie, right? It's like, oh, we want to like, use godzilla for our own benefit it's like oh he wrecked our city oh, yeah i guess we should have seen that coming the hulk is sort of that. It's like, let's bring him to russia so we can take advantage of him oh he wrecked russia all right well uh that happens like the leader like when the leader eventually meets the hulk he's like oh let's i, I want to use the hulk's power on my side oh he destroyed all my robots okay well whoops <laughs> should have left him alone uh and that's sort of the hulk's role often he's just chaos um fights uh, the army a lot and we, we get hints of the sadness of Banner and Hulk, like Hulk has distant, vague memories of Banner. Banner mm -hmm. can't remember what he does as the Hulk. I was, you know, dramatically speaking, that is a fun mode for the Hulk to be and, in. And, and Banner's scared of the Hulk. He's scared of what he'll do. Like there's a shot in this comic where it's just like night is starting to fall and you just see Banner sitting in a chair as like a shadow oh, cast over his face. And it's like, oh, it's it's like a werewolf story. It's like, oh, when do I change next? Who do I kill? Uh, even yeah. though he hasn't, he never kills anyone because it's a code comic code approved book. There is that tear of it. Like as sad as the thing is, the Hulk is that times ten, right? Um, he's also alone. Like the thing is stuck as a monster, but like he has friends and family that take care of him. The Hulk has a kid, yeah, which makes it almost harder. He's depending on like a child that he shouldn't. He almost feels guilty that he has to have involve Rick in this, yeah, even though it's Rick's fault. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Hulk comic is really good. And again, it's just pure, perfect Kirby art. So, um, where do you rank these? I mean, Amazing Fantasy is the top. Yeah. I, I, I want to rank Hulk second, but I yeah. think that second gargoyle half is so much worse than the Mole Man stuff. Yeah. That FF has to beat it. Probably also the impact of the FF is so much greater. Yeah. Um, but taking them out of that, even taking them out of like their importance to the Marvel Universe or comics in general, there's something so exciting and pure about the beginning of the Hulk story compared to the FF story that I really, really love. Yeah. Like the origin of the Hulk is more fun than the origin of the FF. But the first issue of the FF is way better than the first issue of the Hulk at, at the end of the day. So it's got to be Spidey FF Hulk. Yeah, I think that's what it has to be, too. Uh, it'll be interesting to rank all these maybe when we're done as we go through these and see where everything kind of falls. Ant-Man number one. Into the excitement. Um, but yeah, uh, it, these three issues, I would be surprised if these aren't the three best of everything we cover. Uh, even compared to like X-Men and Daredevil, which come yeah, a little sure. later on. Right. Um, and you can sort of see like these are good enough to launch a universe off of, even if everything else is bad, which I don't think they will be. Um, right. You can see why this was enough to launch. This is like, you know, oh, we have Michael Jordan, we have Scotty Pippen, we've got Dennis Rodman. Like, we just need like role players to some yeah. extent. Like, right. this is a good team. We've got Larry Bird and and Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish. Uh, we've got it. We've got Magic Johnson and Kareem and, and uh, 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 James Worthy. James Worthy. I was going to say 
uh, Dominique Wilkins, but he's a hawk. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's just like, oh, you've got, you don't need five great players. You don't need 10 great comics to make a universe off of. You need Superman and Batman and more. Like the more almost doesn't matter, even though, like, I think the original DC characters are all great. Yeah. Marvel Universe doesn't need Iron Man to be the best, coolest character ever. He can sort of ride the wave of Spider-Man and Hulk and FF. Yeah. And, and he has time to get his act together. And it only took him, what, 40 years to become cool. It's also exciting to read Marvel Comics when they were a small company and not beholden to a lot of continuity. Like we, Yeah, we we're always that a mostly, lot just, we're... mostly just Kirby and Lee sitting in a room going, oh, something else. Yeah, what maybe this. We... Yeah. But um, all right, Kevin, I think we did it. Yeah, we covered these. Uh, so next week we're going to cover Ant-Man. I might, I might also read the first Wasp story. Okay. Because uh, I think the first Ant-Man story is almost... I don't think they even knew it was going to be a superhero character. Okay. <laughs> like, I think, like, because I think if I'm correct on this, they did like this first Ant-Man story, Scott, uh, a Hank Pym story. Then there was like, he wasn't in the comic for a, two or three issues. They're like, hey, let's make him a superhero. And they brought him back and he became Ant-Man. And then they added the Wasp. So I kind of want to do the Wasp where it's like, oh, now he's a legit superhero. Let's see how he's changed in that time. Um, but we're going to do, yeah, we're going to do Thor, who's, a legit superhero right out of the gate, I think. Yes. And uh, Ant-Man and maybe the Wasp next okay. week. I'm excited to read him. Um, we've been getting a lot of emails, Will, uh, in response to Gethard's oh, yeah. uh, email to us. Do you want to read them now? or uh, I don't know if you have time now or we can read them next time. I can do a couple now. Um, lots of people have things to say. Yeah. I mean, it's quite an email. Gethard, we got a real good Gethard email. Yes. Um, Let's see. Uh, and he said a number of outrageous things, which is like he'd rather read Squadron Supreme a lot over Watchmen, which is, I think even as, as he was typing and he's like, what am I saying? Even people who don't respond to him reference him talking about how their emails will be shorter than a Gethard email. <laughs> <laughs> so that's nice. Um, let's see. Uh, Gavin Knott wrote to say, morning milk sops. A short email that I insist must be read in full. <laughs> it's become a now a demand. Uh, I would love to hear you read 120 issues of Captain America by Clark Griswold. <laughs> Nobody. That's finally, the vacation I, character. That's, that's yeah, Chevy Chase so, yeah. in, in, in a Yeah, not vacation. Mark Grunewald. He wants Clark Griswold to write them. And finally, I saw a tweet from a fellow listener comparing the Brothers Hines to the Summers Brothers upon learning of the third brother. To that end, I suggest Chris Gethard is your Adam X. I don't know who that is, Gavin. You know X-Men better than me. <laughs> uh, so he, I think, is in favor of us reading those Captain America, the, the 10 years of Captain America comics. <laughs> okay. That's... Uh, Corey Mintz emails us a Gethard rebuttal. Okay. Uh, I heard your solicitation for comic runs to read on the show, and I also heard Chris Gethard's appeal for Mark Grunewald's Captain America, which, if running unopposed... <laughs> seems certain to eventually be elected before we are subject to the rambling 80s and 90s adventures of Captain America I'll make the case for a totally different comic the rambling early 1970s adventures of Captain America by Steve Englehart here's my pitch with all due respect to Stan Lee and Jack Kirby their plates were beyond full during the Silver Age and Cap's solo title was clearly never their priority Lee had his finger on the button of Cap as a member of the Avengers but never knew what to do with the character of Steve Rogers as a star of his own book and Kirby, even in his arguably most fertile period, when he could casually sneeze out a villain as visually interesting as Modoc, 
never seemed all that interested in his own creation. Removed from the 1940s socking Hitler in the jaw context, uh, many Kirby issues, striking as they are, seem to start with the artist going, wait, who is this guy? By the early 70s, as most of Marvel, as most of America finally turned against the war in Vietnam, a superhero dressed in the flag was understandably unpopular, and the title was near cancellation. After a few different writers took a stab at an easy rider style cap, riding a motorcycle across America to find himself in some vague way, Steve Englehart was given a shot. And with little to lose, he did the most obvious, most challenging thing. He had Steve Rogers sincerely question himself, the U.S. government, the concept of authority, and American jingoism. That's my pitch. If you don't know all that happens during Englehart's run, drawn mostly, if I remember, by Sal Buscema, it's a wild story that gets weirder and weirder. And I don't want to spoil it. However, if I didn't sell you, I look forward to hearing about Cap becoming a mummy or a werewolf or a swamp monster, <laughs> whatever happens during the beloved Grunewald <laughs> run. I'm sure that's good, too. Uh, All right. That's a good pitch. That's a good pitch. I have not read those things. Uh, I haven't either. The 70s Marvel is a real, real blind spot for me. Um, here's one from Dan, uh, uh, from Danbury. Uh, you're, Dan Gelati. Uh, yeah, Dan Gelati. Uh, but he signs Dan from Danbury now. Okay. His subject is make make mine Geth. Okay. <laughs> uh, Sops, it's time to make Mr. Gethard the leader of the enforcers. <laughs> it's also time to read 10 years of Mark Grunewald's Captain America. No, okay, know. maybe you could just do a subset. Do Zex run because the artist stellar. Or the period where the Bucky of the 50s was nomad and a wrestler turned superhero D-Man and the Falcon were all palling up. Or when Cap had a long, serious love affair with a Serpent Society member, Diamondback. Honestly, it's all good, nostalgically speaking. But seriously, the whole period when Super Patriot becomes Cap and Cap becomes the captain is probably the best. Grunold was, for some time in that era, one of, if not my favorite writer. So get, spelled G-E-T, on it, Sops. So I think <laughs> it's a Gethard. G-I-T, does he say? G-E-T, uh, then heard. Okay, okay. Is in parentheses. Oh, right, right, right. So it's a geth herd. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, so that's another pitch. That's a, People are pushing us to read <laughs> so much Captain America. <laughs> um, it, here's a Grunewald. Is this a, let's save this one. This is not about Gethard specifically. This is more, we'll get to that one another time. Here's one from John Byrne. Okay. I'm uh, sure this is real. Yeah. Good evening, friends. I didn't start reading comics in the late 90s, <laughs> despite writing and drawing them since 1973. But I agree with Chris Gethard. You should read a decade's worth of Avengers comics. <laughs> Not the decade he suggested. I want to hear episodes about the Avengers of 2003 to 2013, when they had a fluid team and just a continuous stream of insane events after insane events. There was no overarching Avengers-centric plot, and it seemed like the team was just there to interact with the events of the time. Another terrible series to cover would just be the entire original Sin event. Every attached comic was bad, and Nick Fury was able to disarm Thor by whispering something incredibly stupid to him. Uh, thanks for the content. Your friend, John Byrne. Parentheses, not that one, despite the lie I told above. Okay. <laughs> so he's not trying to fool us into thinking he's John Byrne. Honorable. Um, and I think maybe that's it. Uh, I thought we had one more. No, we can we can get to it next episode. Uh, uh, from Alex Segura, I thought he also maybe tweeted it or uh, Instagrammed it. Uh, but in our email box, that's all we have there. Um, 
And so I want to read one last email. This is not about Gethard, but then we can go. Well, okay. This is uh, somebody claiming we made a mistake, but uh, sure if we it's did. true, if it's true, it's just you. I just want to defend myself here. Okay. I, I, that is easy for me to believe. This is Thomas Franzen, who's emailed us before, emailing us. Uh, subject line, you guys made another, in parentheses, mistake. Okay. Sop, sops. In a recent episode of Cosmic Rays and Correspondence, Will claimed that Galactus falling after fighting the heroes in issue 243 was mirrored in Marvels. I'm sorry to report that you're thinking of issue 49 when the FF first fight Galactus. The sequence in Marvels was nearly an exact recreation of that set piece in 49. Hmm. It's an an understandable mistake, though, because Byrne is likely paying homage uh, to that Kirby classic in issue 243. You were probably saying that Byrne is basing the art in the issue on issue 49, which shows up in Marvels. Uh, is that good enough for a no prize? So yeah. uh, you're well, the one who made this claim that Marvels was pulling uh, the panel from Burn. Uh, I did. And I said, oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, you're you're blameless in this one. So um, I don't know. Do you still believe this well? No, I'm totally wrong. And uh, you get a no prize, Thomas. Wow, you came so quickly. Um, I I did a quick look at when we went over the Galactus issue, but I, I must just have been wrong, which is, I don't know. I'm, I give in. I haven't gone back through that Marvel thing, but so he's saying that it's not that the John Byrne panel was not in there. Yeah, I thought there was, but um, okay. Well, if you I think, think he's th- he's mistakes. saying there is a Kirby image that is referenced in Marvels and that is probably also inspiring some of the Byrne art. Yes, that's what so he's it, saying. it doesn't go from Byrne to Marvels. Like, they both come from Kirby. It makes sense. That makes sense. It would seem weird for Alex Ross to pull one Byrne panel and something else that is mostly pulling from original stuff, but. Also, not crazy to do it if it's like a great. Yeah. From Even great as months. you say it, it sounds dumb that I said it. And I apologize to everybody. Wow. Wow. Okay, good. So Will has apologized. Uh, he won't be here next episode. <laughs> he'll be ashamed and will be replaced by uh, AI. And um, that's it. So that's a bunch of emails. We might read more emails here and there during the, this season, but keep writing us at screwitcomics at gmail.com. And check our Instagram, Screw It Comics, and our Twitter, Screw It Comics. And thanks, everybody, for listening. That's it. Bye. Screw it. Screw it. We're just going to talk about comics. comics.